0: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: A A tiny minority of victims of crime are being offered restorative justice. And we know from research in other countries that the proportion of victims who want to participate can vary depending on the type of offence and the seriousness and so on. But it's impossible to know whether or not someone wants to participate or is suitable for restorative justice unless you
0: have that conversation with them. I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Victims of crime can often feel forgotten in the process of justice. But what benefits are there to bring them together with an offender? Today, I'm talking to Dr Ian Marder from Maynooth University about restorative justice and its meaning for the victims of crime. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Ian, you know, restorative justice, I know a little bit about it, but you're going to explain a lot more about it. But for a lot of victims of crime, it would seem really alien to go and sit in a room or to meet their offender because obviously there's all sorts of emotions when you're a victim of crime. There's anger, you know, there's hurt, there is fear, which is a very debilitating um, place to be in life, you know, to be living in or with fear. So Like, what are the benefits or what are seen as the benefits of this restorative justice for people? We have a few examples of those in Ireland that people may recognize that have met their offender and that kind of thing. But like what are sort of to sum it up before we expand, what are the benefits of, of sort of eyeballing that person who did you wrong?
1: Yeah, it's entirely understandable that a lot of people would be quite unsure of whether they would want to do something like that to communicate with the person who's caused them harm. That can be very low level harm or it can be right at the most extreme and serious end of harm. But what we think is it's very difficult to know if you would want to do that until something happens to you because victims can have any of a number of feelings and you can't predict how you're going to feel after something happens to you unless that thing has happened. And if restorative justice is never offered, then people have no way of knowing whether or not they would have wanted to do it. So just from the research alone, we know that victims have very high rates of satisfaction with restorative justice, and also that it can help victims to heal to reduce post-traumatic stress symptoms, such as anger and fear. Mm. And some of that research has taken place with you know, relatively serious crime, aggravated burglary, aggravated robbery, serious violence, and that kind of thing. But, you know, at a, at a more personal level, victims might want to participate in restorative justice for any of a number of reasons. It could be to ask questions that only that person has the answer to, to feel uh, more humanized, mm. you know, to, to see that person, to stop thinking of them as a, a monster, but rather as a, oh, that's a normal person, and therefore I actually feel a bit better knowing that. That's something you often hear from victims of crime who have participated They might simply want more of a mediated outcome. Maybe they want the person to pay back for some damage that was done. If it's, say, you know, wing mirrors knocked off or other types of of criminal damage. But really, it can be any of a number of things. You know, it's different if... Uh, depending on the ages of the people, depending on the type of offense, depending on whether or not they know each other, Mm. can have a massive impact on people's motivations for participating, and indeed depending on the stage of the criminal justice process. So with low level offenses, if this happens, say, instead of prosecution, people might have very different motivations than say if this were to be offered, you know, while someone is in prison for a very serious serious violent offense, or indeed after someone
0: has been released from prison. So like when you the example you said about the wing mirror and the car, it's a kind of a mediation, listen, pay it up, apologize, and fix the car, and we're we're good. To go absolutely kind of whereas absolutely. at the higher level you could have somebody who has either been you know sexually assaulted or perhaps you know there's been some violent crime committed against their child or something a murder for example um maybe they are going to try and find a peace for themselves and ultimately restorative justice is probably to try and find a peace in some way to live with what's happened
1: Yeah, it can. It really can be. I mean, it can be that you want some sort of catharsis, that you have emotions that you want to express. And we know that in the criminal justice process, even if it works theoretically successfully, victims often are not listened to are not, do not feel that they're treated fairly, do not feel that they're respected by the process, don't feel like they're able to participate, that they have a voice, and restorative justice can offer that to victims in a way that really there is nothing in the criminal justice process otherwise that can do. But also, you know, as you say at the very low end, it could be a very straightforward look if you're willing to pay it back And okay, you give me your 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 commitment, you're not going to do it again. I'm happy to take that without prosecution. But also people can go into it with pro-social motives. And we see that a a non um, a a non irrelevant minority of people go into restorative justice thinking, well, I wonder if we can even help the person here. And you see that in the research as well. Mm. So
0: is it largely for the victim or is it also for the offender? Do you know what I mean? That's probably a very basic question in this social science. But is it is it largely weighed towards the victim? The beauty of restorative justice
1: is that it's not a zero sum game. And it's something that could potentially benefit everyone in terms of especially the more serious crime. And some people would even say with any type of offense, that has a victim. It can be really important for that process to be designed offered and delivered in a way that is victim focused or victim centered that is the needs of the victim uh, have primacy in that process, and you ensure that the victim is safe at all times, that they give their informed consent. But those things are also true for any person who participates in restorative justice. Mm. So there is a European legal framework on this, Council of Europe recommendation, and that says that restorative justice is a neutral space where everyone could potentially have their needs expressed, and you can talk about how those needs can be
0: met. Mm -hmm. And you need a mediator essentially there, somebody, some independent, like it's like when people go to get separated, or divorced, they go to mediation where there's this independent person in the middle of them talking about children, talking about money and other things like that. It's similar. Exactly. You
1: absolutely need a very well-trained and skilled professional person, or indeed it could be a volunteer, as is the case in a number of countries, they have volunteer-led restorative justice, and that person's role is to offer restorative justice to the parties to gauge whether or not they really want to do it, what they want to get out of it, and whether or not the process is likely to give that to them, to prepare them for the process. And 90 or 95% of the work is in the preparation. The facilitator, we call it, rather than mediator, could meet people possibly a number of times mm. before those people are brought together or could help them to decide, you know what, I have some questions, but I'm happy to give those in writing, get the answers back and that suits me. We don't have to meet in person. And that's an important point about restorative justice as well is it's about communication between the parties and addressing and repairing harm. And therefore, the people don't have to meet if they don't want to. That mm. could be done indirectly, much as it could be with mediation.
0: In other words, messages could be given one way or the other. but well, presumably, if it was a victim of a serious crime, it would be whether or not, you know, you wouldn't be necessarily facilitating messages from the offender, would you, if the victim didn't decide that they didn't want Oh, no. Yeah. Informed consent from everyone yeah. is essential at the outset of this. And do both
1: sides have equal rights when you enter into it? They do in a sense, yeah. I mean, everyone has to give their informed consent to participate. It's voluntary for everyone. Everyone can pull out at any time. But, you know, the, the rights and protections someone might have depends on the nature of what they're doing, you know, like, for example, if one of the parties is a child, they have additional rights and protections that are really important as in any legal process.
0: Like there's a scale, surely to so we'll and we'll let's park the kind of criminal damage scale, because while obviously burglaries and stuff like that can be very stressful for people, I think the really interesting part of restorative justice is when there has been more serious criminal behavior when somebody has lost a loved one, perhaps or has been en- has ended up with, you know, life changing injuries or something. I mean, that is really the, the end of it that is most interesting, I think, in restorative justice. And maybe there's more to gain from that end of it because you're walking outside the, the, the finances or the material goods that we possess and you're going to emotions and maybe a more positive future or negative future with the scars of whatever has happened to you. I mean, I suppose for, for listeners to comprehend it, we could talk about um a girl called Shanita Daly, who um was abused and has been very bravely, has, has set aside her anonymity, has come forward and has spoken. And she went and met her abuser, who obviously she was she knew was her
1: Absolutely, her case is is a, a really interesting case, and she has spoken about this publicly, and not least in her recent book uh, that was published, I think, last year, called "Sins of the Father," where she outlines in excru- you know in excruciating detail uh, the very long, long experience of abuse that she faced at the hands of her own father, who was ultimately imprisoned uh, for those for those crimes. And she participated in restorative justice during his prison sentence. So she went into the prison to meet him uh, in, a, in an independent, facilitated process.
0: Mm. And did she does everybody get offered that if somebody goes to prison for a, a, a you know a crime like that? So in Ireland, restorative justice is
1: not offered to everyone. Right. And the European legal framework does imply that it should be. And also the Irish legal framework under the Victims of Crime Act says that everyone should have the opportunity to participate in restorative justice where the service is available. So admittedly, the service is not technically available at some stages of the process and in some parts of the country, Mm. but there are parts of the country and stages of the process where the service is technically available, either, for example, with youth diversion, the juvenile liaison officers are all trained in restorative practices and in mediation. So really, it should be offered in all youth caution cases also probation services Mm -hmm. are trained in restorative justice. So really any case where probation have a role where there is a victim of crime, victims should be offered that. And that could be in-between conviction sentencing or it could be post-sentence. But at the minute, we know that restorative justice is not being widely offered. And in fact, there's only about 1,000 cases a year based on the most recent data that we collected in a mapping exercise. We found just over 800 cases in 2019 and yeah. around 1,000 cases in 2022 and that's across the entirety of the republic of ireland from all of these different service providers and importantly it's not just the guards and probation that can do this but there's actually a few non-governmental organizations in some parts of the country so for example in dublin there's an organization called restorative justice services and that's funded by the probation service through uh sorry funded by the department of justice through the probation service and they operate in between conviction and sentencing. Mm. So a judge could adjourn after a person has pleaded guilty and refer the case to restorative justice for that to be explored. Now, again, that doesn't mean that people have to do it. It means that it's explored and offered to people.
0: And it's a big or issue, I presume. It's the resources. Like it everything is, else it is. in this country.
1: This is something that is... Um, that is that does not have zero cost you know it takes people it takes services to offer it to people to prepare people to meet if they want to and then to facilitate the cases but we do know from the international research that this is potentially massive in terms of increasing victim satisfaction with criminal justice in terms of contributing to victim recovery and indeed reducing reoffending as well especially as you say You know, you mentioned that potentially the benefits with violent cases are greater than those with what we call acquisitive crime, your shopliftings, your burglaries, things like that. And the research supports that, that really the impact with those crimes that have a direct personal harm on someone Mm -hmm. can be really quite substantial. And there's research
0: on the potential for that to reduce reoffending in the future. You'd imagine on the sort of the lower level stuff, you know, the damage and the criminal damage and all the rest of it, it makes sense. To try it, to save the money that it costs for these cases to go through the courts, because obviously, you know, that's costing the state of fortune. And you only have to go into the courts to see the amount of people that are being paid every day for these, you know, sometimes which seem, you know, cases that could be sorted out a different way rather than through the criminal justice system. But staying on maybe Shanita Daly for the moment, she goes back to, she goes into prison and she meets her father. And Somebody is an independent in between to help her tell him the hurt,
1: is that it? So help her to think about what she wants to say in advance. Right. So in Shanita's case, and and this is relatively typical of cases at the more serious end, there were things that she wanted to say to him, and there were questions she wanted to ask him and things she wanted to see and hear. So what the independent person does. Is works with both parties and in many cases they might even pass the questions and the answers between people in advance of that Mm. so everyone knows what's going to happen everyone knows what's going to be asked and what the answers are going to be and there's still room for spontaneity in that and for conversation to flow but it's really important that you know no one should be surprised by anything it's really important for the safety of the people there that they know what's happening they're well prepared, their expectations are managed. Like you could have a really bad situation, for example, if what someone really wants out of it is an apology and that apology is not forthcoming, that can be actually quite damaging. Mm -hmm. And so what the independent person would do, the facilitator, is establish in advance, if that's something that you want, I need to make sure that that's gonna happen. This, okay, so you've at, said that you want an apology. I've spoken to the other person and they don't feel in a position to apologize. Do you still want to do this? And of course, there may be cases where an apology is not part of what people want. And the other really famous Irish case where that was true was with um, the film The Meeting that was about Alva Griffith, mm-hmm. who is a victim of rape, of stranger rape, and then met the person who attacked her after he was released from prison. And what she says is she wasn't looking for an apology. She wanted to say specific things to him. She wanted to ask specific questions that only that person had the answers to, questions that had been going around in her head for many, many years, you know, despite the criminal justice system theoretically having been successful. This person was immediately detected, successfully prosecuted, spent a number of years in prison, and still that didn't do that much for her. And her case it should be familiar to many victims of crime who do get a successful prosecution is that that's not really about the victim of crime. That doesn't really meet those needs, those justice interests that victims have around voice, validation, vindication, participation, and service needs. You know, victim services, there's a lot of resources now going into more and more victim services, but we're starting from a very low base where really most victims do not get the services that they need. And so this is another way of a victim being able to say, this is what
0: I need out of, out of justice, out of the justice process. And it seems to me in many ways, like because of the justice process, that the victims are an awful lot is expected of the victims if they're to get anything. I mean, I was in court recently where um there was a guilty plea in relation to the murder of Keen Mulready Woods, who was a teenager who was murdered and dismembered, a uh, horrific case. And Paul Crosby was one of those who had pleaded guilty in relation to that. Um, Now, Keane Mulready Woods family were present, but didn't feel able to stand up in court and speak in front of a full courtroom, but yet wanted to get a victim impact statement out, which was read into the court by a guard. And it was this sort of, you know, yes, they're getting something across, but they're, it feels hollow or shallow or something. And perhaps, you know, um, there's more for the likes of those within restorative justice or maybe the offender is never going to engage. So you have to walk away from that with them. But they just seem to get one instant or one and they have to be brave to do it. I mean, victims of a lot of sex assaults have to give up their anonymity to be heard. Um, And you know, when, when an offender is being released, it's the victims that have to object to the parole board. They have to gear up and speak and you know, go over again how they felt when it happened. And a lot of people are going into the parole system afraid still of the offender. So, you know, it seems to me that the of while it won't be for everyone, um, it is a place maybe for for victims to get something actually just something small back. Absolutely. Of and themselves.
1: Yeah. And there's a really interesting paradox there because for the vast majority of victims of crime, there is an expectation on them and that is that they will do nothing and say nothing and not demand anything of the system because we know that first of all the overwhelming majority of cases that go to say the district court are extremely low level and people plead guilty and so victims may or may not even be told about what's going on in their case you know there's more and more work done with the guards and so on and with the DPP to try and ensure that victims are kept up to date and so on but usually the expectation is that they will do nothing and be happy with it. And then, paradoxically, in a small number of cases... The victim carries a huge burden, a huge weight of expectation that they will testify in public about mm. possibly the worst stuff that's ever happened to them. And as you say, with these recent developments in the parole board, where victims are being offered the opportunity to uh, go and speak to the parole board when someone is being released, or when not even when someone is being released, I should say, but well, they're when there is a to, prospect yeah. of release— that places potentially an enormous burden on that victim of crime who might feel like if the person gets released it's their fault when actually the parole board is taking into account many many different factors so there has been a lot of work done to try and integrate the victim's voice into the traditional criminal justice system and that is very very difficult to do because what the process currently does rightly so is balancing the rights of the accused against the rights of the community, against the rights of other people, and the the state's role in that. And the victim is not a party to those legal proceedings in a common law system like Ireland. Mm. So the victim really, you know, the system is not designed to include them and any efforts to include them, there's always a counterbalancing factor like the victim impact statement. It's actually quite controlled what you can and can't say. And there's a very difficult challenge around that. And then also in terms of, you know, maybe you can have a say with the parole board, but how much influence do you really have? So what restorative justice does is says. And
0: also, Ian, I think some people, they will be going along with life, getting back to some normality, knowing somebody's in jail. And then the time they have to speak to the parole board is when, bang, there's a chance this guy could get out or this woman could get out and all the emotions and the fears. So it's probably not they're probably not at their best at that point to explain themselves. Sometimes they are overwhelmed, really, and they find it really daunting to have to have a meeting with people and to to relive everything, you know. And I mean, that's just the nature of it. But and again, like course, you know, that victim impact statement, they have one chance of doing that. And it's probably at the most emotional time they're begging a judge to give as long a sentence usually as possible. So that seems unfair as well, that they're just the only two times that they have a voice in the system.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there is, you know, technically there is other ways they could plausibly participate
0: following the new victims legislation from 2017. But by and large, I mean, this this restorative justice seems for, for many, I'm sure, probably a more satisfying way of at least attempting to, if they wish, to communicate with somebody who did them harm or a loved one harm or whatever. And yet you're talking about, in 2019, a thousand people partook in it across the country. I mean, that's compared to how many victims of crime?
1: Oh, thousands. Do we have thousands. figures on
0: that even? Are they? Are you talking about tens of thousands? Probably. Well, that's, yeah, that's difficult to
1: say. I mean, we certainly there are six figures at the district court every year. Yeah. How many of those have direct victims? I'm not totally sure because a lot of those would be driving offenses and so on. Mm. But certainly a, a tiny minority of victims of crime are being offered restorative justice. And we know from research in other countries that the proportion of victims who want to participate can vary depending on the type of offense and the seriousness and so on. But it's impossible to know whether or not someone wants to participate or is suitable for restorative justice unless you have that conversation with them. yeah. And so that's why it has to be ideally offered to everyone, why that conversation has to be explored with every victim of crime.
0: And here is it completely random, or as you say, it just depends on the services within your area and perhaps the resources that are being put into those services. I would
1: say that it depends on what services are available in the area, but also on the Choices made by those people who can refer the case or not. So for example in Dublin where as I say You could potentially refer cases to restorative justice in between conviction and sentencing Some judges don't make any referrals other judges make a lot of referrals and also some judges might think These kinds of cases are suitable these kinds of cases are not suitable and so
0: they would make referrals or not mm-hmm. depending on those preconceptions So you're back again to the look of the draw, really, because certain judges would be more into it than others, I'm sure, as well. Absolutely. It's
1: a postcode lottery in that sense. And also it it is like anything else in Irish criminal justice. It's extremely discretionary.
0: Before we move on, because you you pointed it out, that film you referred to uh, is called The Meeting. And if you want to watch it, you can go on to the, well, I think you can go on to this. Yes, you can. You can press watch now. It's a film by Alan Gilson. And it's on TheMeetingFilm.com. Just that's where you can, we know you can get it. I'm sure there's YouTubes or something, but we have that anyway. Um, just to maybe give us a little bit of uh, an idea about who you are and where you fit into all this.
1: Thanks, Nicola. Yeah, so I'm a criminologist at Maynooth University. I'm from Canada originally, but I've lived in Ireland about five years now. Absolutely love it here. Uh, I live it's in a bit Dublin. warmer,
0: which is amazing. It, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in Canada,
1: I mean, you get uh, minus thirty in the winter and plus thirty in the summer, and yeah. you know, we have seasons, I guess,
0: which you don't really have quite as much of here. But God, we really think we have seasons. <laughs> We're convinced of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, you have you know wet season yeah. and dry season. We do skiing, season. I suppose. Yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. But uh, I, my job is a, a couple of things. You know, as a someone who works in a university. I teach in the area of restorative justice on the criminology masters at Maynooth. I also research in the area of restorative justice. So for example, I've conducted research with victims of burglary. I've done some research with the uh, services here in Ireland. But also a lot of what I do is development of policy and practice. So you might say on one hand, there hasn't been a huge amount of research on restorative justice in Ireland, and that is true. But there are certain things that we can be quite confident about based on research from other countries and based on the small amount of research that has been done here. Things like victims have very high rates of satisfaction with Mm. restorative justice. Things like if this is used with the right cases, you can potentially not send people to prison who would otherwise have been on the cusp of custody or that you might reduce reoffending through restorative justice.
0: And so a lot of the work that I do is just explain that to me before you move on. They, you'll reduce reoffending so if they meet their victim the, the studies will show that they won't they're more they're less likely to reoffend again is that what you mean by that
1: right so what we know is that almost all forms of contact with the criminal justice system makes it more likely that people will offend so for any one justice intervention to be shown to reduce reoffending is very significant mm. There have been a few quite rigorous studies on this because you have to control for the fact that it's voluntary. So if someone agrees to participate in restorative justice, they might already be someone who is considering, you know, desisting from crime anyway. But those studies that have controlled for that factor do find significant reductions in reoffending. And that could be that restorative justice acts as a trigger for that, or it could be that it's a stepping stone on the path to desistance, to Mm. stopping
0: uh, committing crime. And did they find, I mean, maybe this wasn't part of the study, but it always seems to me that younger criminals and maybe most of my work these days seems to be an organized crime, but they're chaotic and they don't want to stop for a second to think about what they've done. But they hit their 40s and they start sort of navel gazing and realizing they haven't left much of a mark on the world. And they'd be more in the headspace, maybe to even consider it. Not very many of them in organized crime, but some certainly. Um, is that the just like is that is that across the board that it's more offenders when they're older are more likely to well I mean firstly one of the things you're pointing
1: out which is true in fact it's one of the best uh, uh, most commonly accepted findings in criminology is the impact of the maturity process or what we call the age crime curve and that shows that even if you're not caught the overwhelming majority of people who commit crime when young will stop committing crime as they get older. So the reason that a lot of contact with criminal justice actually increases reoffending is because it can interrupt that process whereby it actually throws barriers in the way such as criminal records, such as the stigma of being sent to prison, or perhaps that you lose those social bonds that you might have family, housing, opportunities for education, employment, and so on, by being sent to prison, say, for a short sentence. So anything that can avoid putting those barriers in place could be seen as more effective, could potentially be more effective. And that's why resolving crime outside of court through other things than restorative justice can be so important, adult cautions and the like.
0: Especially in, in an early criminal career. I mean, you were talking earlier about decriminalizing the possession of drugs. Is that what we were you were, you were writing, I think, in the Irish Times. Yeah, that yeah.
1: So, I mean, that, again, is something that is very well established yeah. in the criminological arena. That, you know, the decriminalization of drugs for personal use is clearly something mm-hmm. that would reduce the amount of harm in society. And that's partially because contact with the criminal
0: justice system almost always makes things worse for people. So in other words, and I haven't covered kind of district courts for years, but a lot of cases that seem to be going through those lower courses, courts rather, are people who you're nearly kind of opening the door for them to a, you know, a criminal career by bringing them into the criminal justice system for their use, for their, you know, what could be handled from a health point of view, a perspective, bring them into sort of addiction services or counselling services, try and steer as many as possible away from going any further into it. Um, And, you know, that, that is kind of an accepted really thought process. Why aren't we doing it?
1: Definitely. I think that, you know, the vast majority of people who are charged in Ireland Could their case could be better resolved outside of court. And of those that do go to court and are convicted and are sent to prison, the vast majority of those probably do not need to receive a prison sentence. And we know that most prison sentences are short. Mm. We know that um, most of those people go on to reoffend. And so what we need is really a a cultural change. It's a change in thought process where right now we assume that you know, retribution has a deterrent impact, and we know that it doesn't. We assume that lengthening sentences, that sending more people to prison will, you know, both uh, have the effect of giving them their just desserts and also make it less likely they'll commit crime in the future. And that is, we, we know from the criminological research that that is not the case, that prison or the threat of prison does not deter or rehabilitate in the vast majority of cases. And that could mean that at the very low level, Cases are resolved with even less intervention than happens right now. But then you have this big group of people in in the middle who probably do need something, Mm. some sort of state intervention or some sort of community intervention that could assist them in meeting their needs in such a way that they don't harm someone else in the future or don't break the law. And for a lot of those people... That intervention might be, as you say, health-oriented, drug-oriented, or mental health-oriented. And again, the research from other countries shows that those are the ways that you reduce reoffending. If you're serious about reducing reoffending, really you want to be using things like prosecution and prison as little as possible. Mm. And even though Ireland has a lower imprisonment rate than some, you know, arguably comparable countries like, say, the UK, which is much higher. England and Wales, it's a much higher imprisonment rate than Ireland. Still, there are people who go to prison here who really don't need to be in prison. And if we had alternative infrastructure in place, then they wouldn't.
0: And it looks so soft sometimes, that idea that, you know, why don't you just throw them in jail, teach them a lesson? Um, You know, if you're living within a community where you have one little troublemaker who's constantly, you know, doing something is get brought before the courts and keeps getting let out. It's very irritating for the community to see that and then they'll do something bigger or commit a more serious crime. And they've always recognized them. But this is really to try and understand that if you can just cut them off at the pass early and if that means sucking up the fact that they're not going to jail for every misdemeanor they do when they're younger, you're going to save financially, hugely in the future. You could be saving lives in some cases because, you know, a criminal always has a path and they'll go from low level offenses to medium to higher level. Some of them um, and they can commit murders and serious crime and they can have a career in serious organized crime, which costs the state of fortune. And even if they're jailed, that costs so much money to hold somebody in prison. So it's actually trying to make people understand, throw money at the problem, you know, when it starts and cut it off at the pass. Isn't that really what it is about?
1: I mean, I'd say that restorative justice is not about soft or hard justice or cheap or expensive. It's about doing things smart. Mm. It's about saying what works to reduce reoffending. It's about recognizing that we're never going to prevent everything from happening. Like. Most crime that happens is for reasons far beyond the presence or absence of whatever intervention the state might have in place. So you're never going to prevent everything, and we can't have that expectation. What we do know is that the current system does not tend to reduce reoffending. It tends to escalate people into things that probably act as a barrier to them engaging in society in a fully lawful way in the future, through things like criminal records and imprisonment. And what restorative justice says is, what if there was a way to begin with the victim to say, what are your needs? What do you need from this justice process? Let's see if through dialogue, we can meet those needs, while also reducing reoffending at the same time. Mm. Some people are going to reoffend, I mean, young people, you know often there's nothing you can do with them that's going to stop mm. that immediately because young people are young people, and uh, they they may lack, you know the the neurological capacity, the psychological capacity to think in the long term to resist immediate gratification. like you can't have as your as your measure of success if this thing doesn't work in this case with this person, then we shouldn't do it at all,
0: yeah. Yeah. And tell me about the idea of restorative justice being preventative, like as in there's been some um, mediation with, say, for example, the traveling community in the Garda Siakona and, you know, with young black adults in the Garda it's trying to get these groupings together. Is it to try and understand where one another is culturally or coming from or?
1: Yeah. So those projects that you're talking about, use a restorative justice style approach to build understanding and relationships between the police and different communities. Mm. So for example, the Traveler Mediation Service uh, established these Guarded Traveler Dialogue Days, and that's about bringing groups of guards and travelers together, not following a specific incident, and not that they already know each other or anyone particularly did anything, but what what value could you add by having direct lines of communication between individuals in the traveler community and the police community that understand each other, that trust each other. And if you take just the example of the guard a traveler dialogue, that, was, uh, that had the effect of preventing some quite serious things whereby the guards can ring up and say, we heard about this, what do you think we should do? Or a a traveler from that community who maybe is mediation trained can ring up and say, so we might have this happening, Um, let us try and resolve it ourselves first. And there has been some evidence of prevention of serious things through that dialogue. With the work with uh, uh, police officers and young black adults, that's been in the west of Dublin. And again, that's not been people who've known each other or focused Mm. on a specific Uh, uh, incident of harm or crime, but rather it's recognizing that that relationship has been damaged, recognizing that there is a problem around understanding and around disproportionate use of police powers and people experience that. And then the trust goes even further. Mm -hmm. So what can you do through dialogue, through bringing people together to have conversations whereby you might be able to build understanding, build relationships? It's
0: right back to community policing. So, you know, so the guards are able to actually know an individual to to speak to if something has happened or, you know, and know how to speak to them. Yeah. And yeah. vice versa.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, restorative policing as a concept has a lot of overlap with community policing. Mm, mm. And what uh, some people say about restorative policing is that through some of these processes, these, these ways of facilitating dialogue between groups or between individuals, either, from a relationship-building, preventative way, or indeed, if some harm has happened and you need to facilitate dialogue to resolve it. Like, these are the tools by which community policing can become real, Mm -hmm. because you are actively saying, you are saying the police should invest time in building relationships with the community, and you do that by sharing experiences, by humanizing people for each other, by resolving offenses to the satisfaction of the people, making sure that the meeting of the needs of individuals take priority over the case being processed through the system. Mm-hmm.
0: Criminology is becoming more and more uh, popular, I think, in Ireland. Are you seeing that and how do you feel that we're approaching all of this sort of uh, more academia Mm. end of things. Criminology is becoming very popular
1: if our first year student numbers are anything to go by. We have seen a massive growth in people wanting to study criminology at undergraduate level. We have seen a growth in criminological research taking place. A number of uh, Irish universities now have extremely strong uh, research connections with criminal justice agencies have conducted really world-leading research in policing, in prisons, in probation services, sentencing, uh, services for victims of crime. It's it's relatively new in Ireland, I would say, but um, it's growing very, very quickly. And I think that can only be a good thing because we need citizens who are criminologically literate because the lessons of criminology are counterintuitive for a lot of people. I can totally understand why someone could... You know, struggle to to realize or struggle to um, recognize that reducing punishment and having alternatives to punishment could actually reduce crime and reduce harm. But we know this to be true because of research that's been conducted in other countries. So it's really important for the criminal justice agencies to base what they do on research. It's really important for researchers to explore what it is that the criminal justice agencies do and any gap between what is said to be done and what is really done, or the impact of what is really done. And, you know, we can communicate that to students as well. And criminology students often study criminology with something else. And that's really useful. You might do criminology and law, criminology and sociology. And so that's that's great because criminology is an applied social science.
0: So that actually kind of half answers my last my next question, which was, you know, is criminology as an academia aware of, you know, what's happening, the changes that are going on out in, you know, the underworld in organized crime? Or does it matter? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Does it matter? Because we're, we're talking about sort of a, you know, our our attitudes to punishment, our ability to try and reduce that and, you know, up the levels of non-reoffending, etc. Does it matter where crime out there is going. There are criminologists who study organized crime,
1: whether the offense is committed or at the serious end or not. And then there are criminologists who study serious crime, uh, whether that relates to organized crime groups or not. But the interesting thing about criminology is that it helps us recognize that the vast majority of crime that takes place and the vast majority of the people who go to court are not at the serious end. Mm. So we would always urge people to recognize that the most serious things are quite anomalous. And you know, if you take, for example, the amount of people who die in the workplace or the amount of people who are murdered, and then the amount of media attention that one gets versus the other, you know, criminal justice actually mystifies rather than clarifies the things that put us at most risk. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy For people to conclude that serious crime is extremely common, that everyone is at a very high risk of that, and therefore we need a very, you know, almost authoritarian or certainly punitive uh, crackdown on crime. And we just know that that's not the case. So what criminology offers to that conversation is, you know, what are the trends, you know, crime is going down and has been for many years in most Western European countries. Uh, you know, violence, there's not really evidence to suggest that violence is increasing, for example, even though many people might assume that it is, and therefore, how do we make criminal justice policy that is based on what happens for most people most of the time, that is suitable for the vast majority of the cases where someone is harmed or the system interacts with an incident of law breaking, and that also is informed by a clear sense of what the impact of different policy changes will be. So when I see, for example, if someone says, we need to raise the maximum sentence for carrying a knife from three to five years or whatever it is, I just think, you know, there is not going to be a positive impact to that. There will either be, that'll either have no impact because sentencing does not deter people from carrying a knife because you assume you're not gonna get caught or whether or not you get caught is not, you know, your main motivating factor for carrying a knife or not. Right? All it'll mean is that the small number of people who are caught get drawn more and more into a system. I would rather see conversations around, okay, what has worked internationally in terms of knife crime? Why do young people uh, carry knives when they do? And what interventions could we have to reduce the harm in that context or in any specific context in such a way that meets the needs of people who are affected, absolutely, including especially victims of crime, Mm. but also people who commit crime and indeed... Recognizing that those interventions, those outcomes, might not be criminal justice in nature. They might very well be educational, healthcare, mental health, or in, or some combination of all of these things.
0: So, like all education, you're teaching people, and a lot of your students, and many more coming after them to see the bigger picture. In absolutely, and absolutely, not the, and not just the headline.
1: And that's the beauty of social science. It really teaches that.
0: Lee well, and Marja, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Nicola. Much appreciated.